The opioid crisis gripping large parts of the world is well recognised. The widespread addiction to opium-based painkillers, which has caused the death of millions. Perhaps less understood is the long and complex history of the opium poppy and how it came to have this devastating impact on the world. Our guest is the award-winning writer Amitav Ghosh, who has published 20 books of fiction and non-fiction focused mostly on his country of birth, India. His Ibis trilogy, Sea of Poppies, River of Smoke, Flood of Fire, is a sweeping historical saga set during the outbreak of the First Opium War, the research he undertook for those books forms the basis of his new work of non-fiction, Smoke and Ashes, a deep history of the opium and heroin trade and how the world became hooked. Amitav Ghosh is with us from his home in New York. Lovely to talk. Thank you and welcome to Nine to Noon in New Zealand. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be talking to you, with you. Your Ibis trilogy, as we said, was an ambitious and sweeping work of fiction. Uh, with opium as at its heart. But was it clear while you were writing those novels that you had unfinished business with this poppy? Uh, well, by the time I finished writing those no- uh, those novels, I was just so sick of um, uh, the poppy that I didn't want to write about it anymore, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I mean, I'd had enough because, uh, you know, it took me 12 years to write those books. And uh, I had an enormous sort of mountain of material. But that's why I eventually came back to it. I felt that someone had to do it, you know. Research, as it is for any novelist, at the heart of um, the groundwork for uh, writing, whether it's novels or nonfiction, what's been, what was the extent and what's been the extent of your research into this poppy and its place uh, in so many aspects of our lives and of history? Um, well, you know, when I began writing the uh, the Ibis trilogy, uh, I wasn't really sort of thinking about uh, opium or the opium poppy at all. I was really interested in, uh, you know, the great sort of migration uh, of, uh, of Indians that occurred in the 19th century with uh, Indians basically replacing uh, Indian indentured labor replacing slave labor uh, in many British colonies, uh, you know, including like Fiji in the Pacific, but uh, most notably Mauritius, South Africa, uh, and the Caribbean. So that was my, that was where uh, you know my interests began, and then I discovered that in fact the great majority of these workers came from one part of India, one uh, you know one part of the Indo-Gangetic plain, uh, which is basically known as Bhojpur, uh, the Bhojpur region. Uh, it's a bit, you know, it's centered on uh, the, the cities of Patna and Banaras. And then as I tried to, as I got into exploring the background of this migration, I discovered that what really happened here uh, is that in the 18th century, uh, the British established this enormous opium economy uh, in this region, I mean, opium had been cultivated there before, but the, after the, the British conquered this region in 1763, they enormously expanded uh, the cultivation of opium because they needed opium in order to trade it for Chinese tea, on which the British Empire uh, was hugely dependent because the tax on tea produced enormous revenues for uh, for Britain. 
So, uh, you know, uh, tea became, as it were, the, the portal uh, to opium. And uh, once the British started cultivating opium on a large scale uh, in eastern India, it also caught on in western India. So it just became, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the trade in opium just grew dramatically over a period of 100 years. It is fascinating. It, it, it had earlier been used as uh, primarily for, for medicinal purposes, and this changes uh, <clears throat> later in time. As we know, we're familiar with the opium dens, etc. And the, the connection, the, the addictive qualities, the impact of the flower on the human being, um, fairly... I wouldn't say unique, but extremely powerful. In fact, I, I think... Um, I think you uncovered that the flower may well have um, uh, developed its chemical structure precisely to ensure that humans would propagate it. We were sort of the evolutionary um, parasites, if you like, or it was the <laughs> for, for the for the opium poppy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We co-evolved. I mean, the opium poppy doesn't exist in the wild. It's a cultivar uh, developed by, by human beings going back thousands of years. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the oldest traces of opium, you know, older and older traces keep turning up. But some of the oldest traces come from Switzerland, you know, so Neolithic sites and so on. Uh, so opium, you know, this is because opium is an absolutely miraculous substance. Uh, it has so many incredible medicinal properties. Uh, I mean, in fact, even today, uh, opium is used in so many kinds of medicines that it's in a way uh, completely indispensable. I mean, uh, if you've ever taken diarrhea medication, it probably had opium in it. Uh, if you've taken cough syrups, that probably had some sort of opioid in it. And of course, if you've ever had uh, an operation, uh, the anesthesia almost certainly had opium in it. So opium, because of its miraculous uh, medicinal properties, uh, was very tightly bonded with human beings. So in, in many parts of the world, uh, you know, people cultivated opium medicinally. But then what happened is that uh, people also did know about the, uh, you know, uh, opium psychoactive properties. But, uh, you know, opium was very rarely used as a sort of consciousness altering drug uh, before the 16th century or the 15th century, I should say, because uh, in any opium was very difficult to produce. It was extremely expensive. So uh, it wasn't easy to get a hold of. But, uh, you know, the Mongol Empire played a large part uh, in introducing opium as a recreational drug uh, because, uh, you know, the, uh, the successor empires to the Mongol Empire, like the Mughals in India, uh, the Ottomans in, uh, in what is now Turkey, uh, uh, they and their courts, the emperors and their courts began to use opium recreationally. And then, as often happens, uh, it started uh, percolating downwards. But even then, opium was not used very much. I mean, uh, the total production of uh, opium uh, in India, for example, was a few hundred chests. But then once the Dutch became uh, dominant in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, they discovered uh, that they could use opium to establish monopolies uh, on other kinds of trade goods. And they, in a very short period in the 17th century, enormously expanded the market for opium in Southeast Asia. Uh, opium really became for them a tool of empire. And basically, once the British gained control of the opium-producing parts of India, 
uh, they just took that model and uh, developed it into the model of a, an imperial narco state. Well, let's look at the also an imperial narco state. Let's look at the impacts of that. As you said, it was tea that was the trade, uh, and they had been told there was no interest in their manufactures. So the opium poppy indeed was to be uh, the the vital trade commodity. What happens with the um, uh, East India Company? I think initially serendipitously yeah. early in the in the nineteenth century acquiring this area of opium producing heartland. What happened to go from those early beginnings to the ravages really that were to ensue, Amitav? Uh, so actually, uh, that area fell into the hands of the British Empire in the uh, in the 18th century, in the 1760s, and from then on, uh, they just uh, enormously expanded uh, the market in opium uh, in China, and that's the bizarre thing, you know, when you think of opium, you think of opium dens and so on, and. Uh, the association is uh, with China and with other parts of Asia. But in fact, opium wasn't used much in China at all uh, before the 8th century. It was entirely Europeans uh, who, paid, uh, who played an instrumental part uh, in inducing opium to China. In fact, the great irony of opium in China is that for the Chinese, it was something completely for- foreign. Uh, it was uh, uh, it was a foreign thing, you know, and that was its very appeal. So, uh, you know, uh, what happened over the in the course of the 19th century is that uh, uh, addiction grew at an incredible pace in China over over a period of a hundred years. Now, this is the bizarre thing about opium. You know, with the, the British would always say, "Oh, well, there's a demand, and, and if we don't." Uh, if we don't create the supply, then someone else will. But in fact, opium doesn't uh, doesn't follow those laws. Uh, uh, with opium, uh, actually, it's supply that creates demand, and that has continued to this day. I mean, this is something that's uh, let's say Purdue Pharma, you know, which created the initial OxyContin uh, epidemic in America, understood this perfectly well. Uh, one of the owners of uh, Purdue Pharma actually said. Uh, you don't uh, you don't chase a market uh, you create it, and in fact, in a period of six years, uh, you know, Purdue Pharma, in a very determined way, uh, grew uh, the demand for opium uh, for opioids uh, in America at a fantastic rate. Very lucrative for Britain. What was the impact on India and the people of these regions? Uh, The impact varied (laughs) in the region where the British, uh, uh, where the East India Company sort of produced opium as a monopoly. It had an absolutely devastating impact on the agrarian uh, economy. And this is mainly the uh, economy of the of the Gangetic Plain. Uh, The Gangetic Plain was historically the richest part of India. And in the course of uh, you know 150 years under uh, under British colonialism, it became completely impoverished. It became the poorest part of India and remains so to this day. And I think uh, you know economists have actually shown uh, that uh, the lingering after effects of opium cultivation uh, are still visible to this day in lower education, lower public investment, and so on. So it it was. Well, what it created was something like a resource curse, you know, 
and the resource curse has uh, has continued into uh, into contemporary times. How long did the trade continue with uh, effectively East East India uh, East India Company effectively under orders, right? Uh, but how long did the trade continue? Uh, well, the trade, the East India Company itself uh, ceased to exist uh, uh, in 1857, and then uh, it was really uh, the British Raj which took over the trade, and uh, it continued. It it continued <laughs> almost up till uh, Indian independence. In fact, uh, you know, the first, uh, you know, around about 1908 onwards, and it uh, proceeded in fits and starts because the, uh, the European empires really resisted controls on, um, on opium. You also discovered... Uh, uh, yes, I beg your pardon, continue. I've just got, we've just got disconnects, so I apologise. Uh, the British actually... Ah, uh, the British actually built uh, the largest opium factory in the world in a place called Neemach in India uh, in 1935, you know, even as uh, these opium controls were being established. You also discover, or posit perhaps better put, a, a possible link between your own family and the opium trade. How so? Well, uh, the story goes in my family that uh, that my ancestors had to leave uh, their ancestral village in Bangladesh, what is now Bangladesh, uh, in the 1850s, and moved westward, and they ultimately settled in a small town called Chapra. And this was always very puzzling to me because, uh, you know, when I was growing up, Chapra was sort of a, a byword for provincialism. And also, you know, it was a place where uh, nothing was happening. I mean, it barely had an economy. Uh, so I often wondered, you know, uh, how this had come about. Why had they settled there? And then I discovered that actually in the 19th century, Chapra was a major center for uh, for the cultivation of opium poppies. Uh, so I imagine, and I have no proof of this or anything, uh, that uh, they were in some way employed. They found just a major dropout. We'll hope Amitav comes back. Amitav Ghosh is back with us. Um, thank you, and apologies for these dropouts, Amitav. Um, the opium wars themselves, can you just set the scene for us a little a little bit more uh, as to the circumstances and the role of the course of the uh, of opium in these conflicts? Well, uh, so what happened is that uh, uh, the export of opium from British India to China uh, grew so fast that by the 1830s, the Chinese were facing a huge problem of addiction, public health, and also a financial problem because they were hemorrhaging uh, silver, you know, because uh, silver was being used to uh, buy opium. So the Chinese uh, emperor decided that something had to be done, and he sent uh, one of his most trusted bureaucrats uh, to Guangzhou, which was uh, uh, the main port uh, at the time in China, and uh, his, uh, the, uh, this bureaucrat, his name was Lin Zhezhu. He became the governor general of that region. And he immediately clamped down on the opium trade. And he, uh, he sort of uh, put the merchants, uh, the British, American, and other foreign merchants uh, under house arrest. And he confiscated their, uh, their stocks of opium and then publicly destroyed those stocks of opium. And, but the British treated this as a casus belli, and they launched uh, the first opium war. 
They attacked China and basically forced China to keep importing opium. When did China really um, crack down, if that's not a pun, crack down? Was it, you know, usage rife, really, right up to the Communist Revolution, I think? Was it Chairman Mao uh, in the 50s that finally brought it to heel? Um, No, actually, that's rather too simple a picture. What happened is that in the late, from the late 19th century onwards, uh, there was a huge uh, uh, movement uh, of various kinds of uh, organizations, what we, uh, in what we now call civil society, uh, women's groups, within the public. There was a huge sort of uh, revulsion against the whole opium trade. So, and that happened also in India and in many other parts of Asia. And of course, there was an anti-opium movement also uh, in Europe and especially in Britain and America. Uh, so uh, this movement uh, gathered strength uh, over the 19th century. And in 1908, uh, uh, the Qing emperor, who had been forced to legalize opium by the Second Opium War, and who legalized opium in 1860, and uh, this didn't solve anything, in fact. I mean, uh, it's often thought that legalizing drugs can uh, can solve the problem, but it didn't in this case. In fact, it only grew worse and worse. So in 1908, he again uh, uh, criminalized uh, the opium trade. And that was when the British were finally forced uh, to start negotiating uh, to limit opium. So these negotiations continued in fits and starts uh, until until the the 1930s, 1940s. Uh, But China continued to have, have, uh, you know, uh, a dwindling but still important opium problem uh, until the 1950s. And that's when uh, the Communist Party cracked down on it and essentially put an end uh, to the circulation of opium. So the trade ends officially in in, in 1913, um, and we've talked about the the history since. This is is a story not just of imperialism, but of globalised capitalism, right? Yes, absolutely. And so it's good to come forward now to the more recent um, iterations, I guess, that have... um, had such great attention, and specifically the opioid epidemic in the United States in particular, the Purdue Pharma scandal. This is a case of, of a migration, if you like, of the impact of the drug into uh, a legal but indeed oppressive trade of its own kind, Amitav. From from whence did that spring, the, the, the opioid epidemic in, in the United States? What was its genesis? Well... Uh, the, the United States has had uh, previous uh, sort of outbreaks of opium addiction. Uh, so uh, in the 1860s, during the Civil War, for example, opium was very widely used by American soldiers, uh, you know, but then it dwindled a little bit. Uh, but then, and then again, uh, in, uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, there was a widespread use of drugs of all kinds, including uh, heroin and so on. And certainly, uh, you know, uh, the Americans also used uh, uh, opium instrumentally uh, in Southeast Asia. But uh, uh, really, this particular uh, this particular epidemic, uh, which began with the marketing of a drug called OxyContin, a very powerful opioid, uh, it, uh, it's very easily datable. Uh, OxyContin was introduced by Purdue Pharma in 1993. And, you know, by the uh, early 2000s, it had become uh, opioid uh, opioid overdoses had become one of the leading causes of death in America, and it still is. 
and people thought that, you know, once uh, once legal opioids uh, were, uh, you know, uh, suppressed, that uh, opioid deaths would tail off. But in fact, that hasn't happened. It's continued to rise because now there are synthetic opioids like fentanyl, uh, which are much, much more deadly and much more addictive and uh, they now circulate on a, on, a, on a very large scale. Which brings us to the third strand of all this, because the Purdue Pharma scandal was a legal pharmaceutical company, uh, but one that has been shown to have told many falsehoods and pursued unethical behaviour, <laughs> I'll put it politely. But the issue now of the control of the opioid supply has, has moved from state control in earlier areas to, to criminal gangs now. That is a... Uh, that is the the main sort of conduit for what are now illegal drugs, Amitav. Uh, yeah, uh, that's that's exactly what happened. I mean, uh, you know, in the 19th century, it was uh, these big empires were controlling the opium trade, uh, but uh, now uh, the the trade has passed entirely into the hands of uh, international drug cartels, and they've grown incredibly powerful. Uh, in the, uh, it's now said that uh, uh, some of the arms for Ukraine have ended up in the hands of Mexican drug cartels. Uh, in the northern Mexico, there's widespread opium cultivation. So it, it's become, uh, you know, an ever-growing problem. But most of all, you know, the problem lies now with uh, synthetic opioids uh, because uh, these are, uh, can be produced very cheaply and, uh, you know, one of the Ironies of this whole thing is that uh, the precursor chemicals for synth- uh, synthetic opioids now come largely from China, and uh, th- these precursor chemicals can be uh, uh, can be imported uh, over the internet, and no one can detect them because they're odorless. Uh, they simply can't be detected. You can just order them uh, on the internet. So uh, you know these uh, these things are, are becoming uh, an ever-growing problem. Thank you so much. Amitav Ghosh, the latest book, Smoke and Ashes, Opium's Hidden Histories, is his non-fiction book. Of course, it follows the earlier trilogy, the Ibis trilogy, uh, that were novels.